So first we're testing out the submarine. So we're, we're on the deck with the submersible, running through all the pre-dive checks, making sure the sub is working. We close the hatches. At that point, we can actually get out of the sub on our own. We have to be let out. We get attached to the crane, it dropped over the side, released from the crane, move away from the ship. You know, water is sloshing over the dome and the sub is kind of moving back and forth. And then we start dropping down. So basically releasing all of the air from underneath the sub and it gets darker and darker. It depends a little bit on where we are. It could get kind of blue or kind of green. Usually more at the surface, you see little, you know, like fish. Sometimes I've seen seals and dolphins from the sub, which was amazing. But then as you get deeper and deeper, you know, 100 meters, 200 meters, it starts to get much darker. Turn on our lights. So at this point, we're only really seeing what's kind of right in front of the lights. Off to the side, you might see beautiful, colorful, flashing jellyfish or other types of uh, luminescent creatures. One of our folks refers to them as disco jellies. But it's not quiet. You've got static from the radio. There's, You can hear the sound of the thrusters going whirring and, and you're just trying to appreciate it all but there's all this noise. Usually as we get closer to the bottom is when we start seeing a lot more life. Uh, it could be krill for example you know little shrimp like creatures or it could be the squid that often attacked us in the Bering Sea. I think people probably don't realize just how important the seafloor is in terms of where the biodiversity is is concentrated. So the deep sea is most of the seafloor. This is Oceans, Life Underwater, a new podcast all about the oceans and the mind-blowing life within them. I'm Hannah Stitfel. I'm a zoologist, wildlife filmmaker and broadcaster. And I'm on a mission to learn everything I can about our five oceans, the Atlantic, Pacific, Indian, Arctic and Southern. In this episode, The Ocean's Deep. It really is very much out of our world, and then also it is our world, right? The blue planet where we live. People say we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the bottom of the ocean. Is that true? We don't know what's down there. We don't know the names of many, many, many of the species that live there. You could drop in almost anywhere in the ocean, and you could probably discover a new species. This is Ocean's Life Underwater, Episode 2. My guest today is a submarine pilot, explorer and campaigner. John has been exploring the ocean's deepest, darkest corners for over 20 years. He's been face to face with some of the world's weirdest creatures and has even discovered an entire new species at the bottom of the ocean. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome him on today. Hello, John. Hello. It's nice to be here. 
thank you so much for coming on. Where are you at the moment? Looks like you're in a jungle. It feels like I'm in a jungle, but I'm actually at the Greenpeace International headquarters in Amsterdam. Fantastic stuff. So let's get into it. I mean, there is a story that we know more about life on Mars than we do the bottom of the ocean. Is is that true? I think it is. I mean, we've really just barely scratched the surface when it comes to understanding what is happening in our ocean. We don't know what's down there. We don't know the names of many, many, many of the species that live there. We don't know how they work together. Uh, we're barely beginning to understand what we've done already and, and what we need to do to turn things around. And of course, as a submarine pilot, I mean, you go very, very deep. I mean, what what is it like down there? What do you see? What do you hear? Every One of the things that I think is surprising to people is that every part of the ocean is so different. Um, it's really incredible being able to visit parts of it in a submersible. Each time we drop down, we really don't know what we're going to find. You never know what it's going to be like. Is it going to be sand? Is it going to be a coral reef? Is it going to be, uh, who knows? You know, it's one of the things that's so amazing about it is just how rich and diverse and different the different parts of the ocean are. How deep? What's the deepest you've ever gone to? I've only 600 meters. Only? <laughs> only. Uh, and I say only because the oceans are so much deeper than that. I think they go to have to do the, the miles to kilometers, but it's about 12 kilometers. Uh, wow. So you could drop all of Mount Everest into the ocean and still you'd have an enormous amount of water above it. What is the deepest, deepest point of the ocean? And have, have people been down there? And if so, what does it look like? And what's the life like down there? The deepest part of the ocean is the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. And this is seven miles, so, you know, 12, 13 kilometers down. It's just incredible pressures, uh, very, very cold, completely dark. And yet there are still fish that live there. We're still finding plastic trash there. There are only a handful of people that have been to this area. It's really difficult. It's a bit dangerous, it's pretty expensive. The Chinese sent a submersible down recently. A couple rich people have made their own efforts to make it down there. But I think it's also worth saying it's the deepest area that we know of. There's still a real possibility that there's somewhere deeper out there that we just haven't found yet. Absolutely. So, you know, your job is is incredibly important. And I guess for anybody listening to this who are obsessed with the oceans like like we are, I mean, how do you even become a submarine pilot? How did you become a submarine pilot? Well, it's a funny story. So I, I went to my boss, Lisa Finaldi, and I said, hey, you know, I think we need to protect the largest underwater canyons in the world. And these are in the Bering Sea off of Alaska. And she said, oh, that sounds interesting. I said, yeah, but to do that, we're going to have to show people why they matter. We're going to have to show people what's at stake. Uh, because the industry is saying there's nothing down there but mud and silt and it doesn't matter what they do. And she said, okay, that sounds interesting. And I said, we'll be able to use our ships. You know, Greenpeace has ships, which is pretty amazing and unusual. But I think we're going to actually need a submarine to get down there. And she said, oh, really? And somehow it worked. So that's that's how it happened. Um, she, uh, she, she, she let me go ahead and it was about a... 
like four day training. So, you know, if you could figure out how to drive a car, you could you could learn to drive a submersible. Only four days training. I would have assumed it'd be longer than that to become a submarine pilot. It's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. You know, it's not like uh, I'm not I'm not driving a nuclear submarine where, uh, you know, there's a thousand people on board. This is usually either just one person or, or two people in these really small subs it's like the size of a small car. So again, you know, if you figure out how to drive a car, you could learn to drive a sub. Can you tell us a bit more about diving in Antarctica and also diving with some pretty famous people I've heard? Occasionally in the submersible, I, I have some pretty uh, famous guests. And one was Javier Bardem, the Academy Award winning actor. John, how are you, my friend? I'm good, thank you. <laughs> What are you doing and uh, what's the purpose of this submarine? We are using this submarine to gather data that will Very, very nice guy. Really passionate about Antarctica. I think his maybe his first email address had penguin in it. There's a guard looking at us. He knows what we are. Mr. Penguin! Gene strap. He just loves penguins. And so it was really cool to be able to bring him down to Antarctica. We're on the ship for about a week together. Like, we're all just hanging out at, at night, talking, you know, telling stories. Javier Bardem's stories are not like other people's stories. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I was at this party with uh, Mick. Like, you mean Mick Jagger? Like, yeah, okay, all right. Some crazy person on board told me that they are asking if I want to go in there. Uh, <laughs> What do you Would think? you recommend that? I think you should come. <laughs> really? It's pretty cool. He uh, he wanted to go in the sub, but still, you know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a bit of a leap. And so he seemed a bit nervous about it. I love to, but I don't know. Maybe I'll stay on board. <laughs> will I go? Will I not go? We talked about it for a few days. Of course he went. Um, you know, who would, who would pass up the chance? He... Uh, got very comfortable very quickly as we were going down and then on that dive we saw things that we still don't know what they were we got footage of things that were just just weird looking i mean as a you know as a someone who's spent a lot of time studying marine biology it was still weird looking i i had no idea what we found so that was cool um and he's become such a powerful advocate for the oceans for the ocean treaty you know came to the un and spoke directly to world leaders about why we need them to take action now and he means it you know i think you were talked about you know it's easy to get cynical i think a lot of people i think why you know why is this celebrity saying this stuff about this thing do they really care are they just trying to get publicity the people that we tend to work with, and Javier Bardem for sure, it really it's from the heart. And uh, it was great to give him a vehicle where he could be so, so effective, you know, use his voice and his following um, and his, uh, you know, his storytelling power to make a difference. And that was, it was nice to be a part of that. Well done, everyone. 
I must just say as well, you've just let all of our listeners know that his first email address has penguins somewhere in it. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess super fans don't don't go try find him and email him. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, let's just let that go. <laughs> don't get me in more trouble than I already am. Oh no. Do you ever feel claustrophobic? I don't feel claustrophobic once I'm in the water, but when you're in the sub and they close the hatch and they lock you in, it's very small. And the the top, you know, the dome is just maybe two inches over my head. So it's it's pretty small. It doesn't bother me, but I definitely have talked to people that don't like that feeling. But once you're in the water, the you don't see the dome anymore. It's it's uh, it's clear, so it's just like you're you know completely open to the ocean. <laughs> now, tell us a bit about some of the creatures that live down in the deep, because it really is, um, and it's a shame because it is almost out of sight, out of mind, and that's why your work is so important um, to teach people about what's in the deep and why it is important. And I always remember learning about uh, the anglerfish. I remember that was the first deep sea creature I learned about and how the females are huge and then the tiny little male in some species comes up and latches onto her and then he gets absorbed into her body and that's how they uh, make little anglerfish. And that totally blew my mind. But everything down there is, is out of this world, isn't it? It really is very much out of our world. And then also it is our world, right? So it's, it's, it's hard for us to imagine what it's like. It's so alien in many ways. And it's, it's our, you know, it's our planet. It's the blue planet where we live. One of the surprising things about our ocean is that it provides about 90% of the habitat on our planet. So it's very, it's not just what's on the surface. It's three-dimensional. So, you know, in a submersible, you experience this a little bit, like you're at the surface, you've got light, uh, you've got things that are floating on the surface of the ocean, and then you start to drop down. It gets pretty quiet, actually. Um, you know, you, you lose light, it gets darker. Once you get farther away from the surface, you're usually seeing a lot less fish, a lot less things moving around. And then as you get towards the bottom, then you start seeing more and more stuff again. Um, and then when you're actually on the bottom, that's where often it's just teeming with life. Worms and clams and all kinds of mollusks and um, echinoderms, so things like starfish. And, uh, and then you've got fish that are feeding on some of these things and crabs and corals and sponges, all this stuff. You know, once you get out of these little thin bands, just, uh, you know, what, 300 kilometers or so away from our shores, it starts to drop down and get pretty deep very quickly. This is where we know the least about what's going on. It's where uh, probably most of our species live. And so far, it's still the most pristine ecosystem on the planet. Absolutely. And... What would you say has been your most memorable encounter with with the creature of the of the deep? It's in the Bering Sea off of Alaska, and we're at the bottom. You know, at this point, maybe it's five hundred meters or something. And there's this giant Pacific octopus. And that's the name of it, but it's also giant. It's a big. It's a big octopus, and it's bright, kind of orangey red. And it's very cold down there. It's maybe, you know, 
three degrees Celsius. And the, the octopus is just kind of moving very slowly, looking kind of sleepy. Uh, and just getting to park the submersible right next to this octopus and just hang out with this giant Pacific octopus. And we also discovered maybe the world's largest skate nursery. And skates are kind of like stingrays. They're relatives of sharks. There's, again, near big canyons, uh, which seems to be one of the places where skates like to lay eggs. But, you know, we're just cruising along and all of a sudden the size of a maybe football stadium. Um, there are egg cases everywhere and there's skates swimming, flying around and um, never seen anything like it. And it just makes you wonder, how do they know to come here? How do they find each mm -hmm. other? How do they know this is the spot? Because from the surface, it looks like everything else. And no one knew it was there until we stumbled upon it by mistake. If you were trying to discover a new species, if that was the point of what you were doing, you could drop in almost anywhere in the ocean and you could probably discover a new species so you would be you know dragging up a lot of mud probably especially and then just sifting through and finding what you've you've picked up chances are really good uh that some of it is new to science so especially in the in the deep sea scientists are constantly discovering and cataloging new species still at you know 2024 uh, we really, we've, again, just really scratched the surface. Well, there you go. For all of our budding marine biologists listening in, and if you want to discover a new species, this is this is the job for you. <laughs> Absolutely right. That's, that's the place to go. On Earth, if you want to discover a new species, the deep sea is where it's at. Have you ever seen a giant squid? I've never seen a giant squid. I would mostly love to. I think a giant squid is actually something that could completely end a submersible expedition. I think a giant squid would be strong enough that it would pull bits off the sub that we wouldn't be able to replace. I mean, I don't think we would be, you know, at, at personal risk or anything, but um, they'd probably pull the camera off or lights or something that we'd actually need to be able to function. So I would really love to see one, but also that, that's the one thing that I kind of worry about encountering. So, you know, you, it can take us months and months to plan one of these expeditions and you don't want to end it before you're ready to stop. The giant squid could definitely end it. And, and how big do the giant squids get? Oh, I think the really big ones could be the size of a bus. No. Uh, really? At least as long as a bus and very very powerful. There's not a lot that we really know about giant squid or their cousins the colossal squid. We usually only encounter them when they wash up on the beach or you know we see, we often see the evidence of them. We see the scars from their tentacles on, on sperm whales for example. They can be found certainly could be in deep water but also you know they go where they want to go basically it's kind of like great white sharks there's they go where they want to go they eat what they want to eat um, <laughs> and they're the size of a bus <laughs> hopefully not the size of a bus we're talking about great white sharks that would be terrifying but yeah the giant squid and the big octopus one of the things i think that is so fascinating about them is the intelligence that's there also. With octopus, they 
the ability to change their colors and move in a way that can mimic something completely different from them. You know, not just another octopus, but a whole, like they could try to look like uh, anything they want, really. I mean, they're truly remarkable and um, almost a distributed intelligence. So they, you know, we think about walking and chewing gum at the same time they're managing eight arms at the same time and also color patterns across their entire body all at the same time they they can move in you know six or ten different ways Um, they can walk and make it look like they're you know walking on the bottom or they can swim or they uh, it's really hard to imagine what it would be like to be an octopus (laughs) and what it would take to think and move and operate like an octopus and that's that's uh it's fun to think about i mean cephalopods in general are they they are they are otherworldly group of species and i just want to say to our listeners we've actually got a full podcast episode coming up all about octopus it's going to be exciting a quick little message from me if you're enjoying this series and i really hope that you are Help us out by hitting the follow button. Do check us out on socials. We've got some amazing video content on TikTok, Instagram, and X slash Twitter. And if you want to see what it looks like to go down in a submarine, come and join us at Oceans Pod. Before we get back to John, I've got a question for you. Can you actually picture how deep the oceans really are? It's pretty hard. So here's Helen, my guest from our last episode, to help you out. Let me tell you just how incredibly deep the ocean actually is. I want you to imagine that we're going to sail offshore together in a beautiful sailing yacht to a part of the ocean where it's very, very deep. And I'm going to take a normal glass marble. I'm going to drop it over the side of the boat. And we can follow that marble on its journey down through the depths. And in fact, the deep ocean is divided up into different areas, different zones. The top is the sunlight zone, the part where the sun is still shining. It's the top 200 metres, and it's going to take our marble about six or seven minutes to drop through that bit. Then the marble will reach the twilight zone. This is the part where all around us, the light is very deep blue. It's the last remnants of sunlight of just making their way down into that zone. The marble's going to pass through the twilight zone for about half an hour. And then it's going to reach the midnight zone. That's at about a thousand metres down. And this is where there's no sunlight at all. All that light coming down from above has been absorbed by the water. It's permanent midnight in this zone. That's going to carry on down to about 4,000 metres. It's going to take about an hour and a half to get through the midnight zone. Our marble's falling all the way down and down. And it's going to keep on going. If we've positioned our yacht in a good place above one of the deepest parts of the ocean, which are the oceanic trenches, the big chasms in the bottom of the sea. If we could get our marble into one of those, and possibly the deepest, which is the Mariana Trench in the Pacific, it's going to have to carry on down to almost seven miles. That's the deepest point, 11 kilometres just about. It's going to take our marble from the surface, falling all the way through the sunlit zone, twilight, midnight, into the Hadal zone, which is what that last bit's called. It's going to take six hours. 
six hours from the top to the bottom. It's a very long way down to the bottom of the sea. Sir John, can you tell me a bit about the thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean? When I was, uh, I don't know, I was probably 16, I wrote a paper called Stuff Lives Where There's Food, and it was about hydrothermal vents. Excellent title. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> um, our oceans are expanding in some areas and, and contracting in others, and the Hydrothermal vents are basically where the sea floor, new seafloor is being created. Uh, so you have this really hot magma and gas at the bottom of the ocean, and it can form these magnificent chimneys and, and almost cathedral-like structures. And what's so fascinating about these areas is that it's a whole food web that is not dependent on the sun. So most, even in this, even at the bottom of the ocean, a lot of the food there originally came from the surface. And so it, you know, it started with phytoplankton and plants that uh, turned sunlight into food. And then, you know, things ate them and things ate those other things and they decayed and got chewed up and then they sank to the bottom. And this is different. This has nothing to do with the sun. The sun, if the sun didn't exist, this whole ecosystem would still be there. And in this very superheated water that's coming out of these vents, you have uh, high portions of metals that then are turned into food by bacteria. And so when they first discovered the hydrothermal vents, they, they encountered these weird, really big worms and clams, not just new species, but new classes of new phylums of species of, of creatures and uh, they feed on these microbacteria that are only found in these vents and so it's this whole new ecosystem that's thriving and it's got nothing to do with the sun or or plants it's wild that is incredible i can't even comprehend it that there's a whole ecosystem that is totally unreliant on on the sun it's amazing stuff, but um, that hasn't stopped some mining companies from wanting to go and cut off the tops of these chimneys and, you know, these underwater cathedrals and sell them, you know, maybe for uh, nuclear missiles. What is wrong with them? Can't they do something else? Do you know what I mean? Just, 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 leave, just leave them alone. <laughs> it doesn't say good things about humanity that we come up with these ideas. And it doesn't really say good things about our governments that they would allow, that they would entertain an idea like that. I mean, this seems clearly like something that we should just stop before it gets going. Fortunately, there are quite a few governments at this point that have already said, look, we need at least a moratorium on deep sea mining. We, we have a lot of questions to answer before we're going to allow that to move forward. And you've been part of the Rebuild the Oceans campaign for, for 20 years. In that time, how have you seen the oceans change? Oof. When I was in grad school, we and I was studying coral reefs, we were not talking about bleaching. That that wasn't even really a thing yet. Uh, so seeing just how quickly coral bleaching driven by 
warming oceans driven by climate change has devastated reefs all over the world is, has been uh, hard hard to cope with. And that's in a relatively short period of time as well. Very short period of time. I mean, you know, certainly in my lifetime, but even just a part of my lifetime. But beyond that, I'd say another really big change is the impact of plastic. It doesn't matter what they study, but every type of marine biologist or, or oceanographer is encountering plastic. You know, I, I talked to a coral scientist that I wasn't thinking about plastic. I was trying to figure out what my corals were eating. And then I saw that they were eating, what is this stuff? Oh my God, they're eating plastic, you know, these little bits of microplastic. And she even found that um, they were preferentially eating plastic. The, the corals would choose plastic over something that was actually food. And then she became, you know, kind of a plastic expert. She didn't want to be, uh, but it's just there's so much plastic that we've put into our world that it, uh, if you're studying the world, you're studying plastic. There's, I mean, plastic's even been found in the Mariana Trench, hasn't it? That's right. At this point, it is literally everywhere that we look. Uh, expeditions that I've been a part of, you know, we've been to the big trash vortexes um, in the Pacific, in the Atlantic. Uh, but also we, you know, we go to places where you hope there won't be any plastic. Um, you know, you go to the tops of mountains, we go to the Antarctic, it's in the snow in Antarctica. It's, uh, we saw lots of it in the Arctic. There's, there's really nowhere to go on Earth where you won't find plastic at this point. So, John, you're a little bit of a superhero, I think. I mean, you know, you're a submarine pilot, you're a campaigner, you've discovered new species. Dare I ask, what are you working on right now? Oh, my God. So we are going to end deep sea mining before it starts. So we think about all these huge issues it can be pretty overwhelming, you know, climate change, deforestation, overfishing, problems that took us decades or hundreds of years to create, it can feel pretty overwhelming to try to stop that. We still have to do it. Deep sea mining though, this is something that it's a terrible idea that we haven't started doing yet. These companies want to go out and mine the world's most pristine ecosystems, the deep sea for these rare metals. We don't actually need to do that. You know, just thinking about all the things that we have to deal with on this planet already, the idea of starting a whole new terrible industry, let's let's not do it. It's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. It's a bad idea. <laughs> I think we can agree on that. It's a bad idea. We are also making sure that our fisheries are not harming the environment, are not, you know, incidentally killing hundreds of thousands of turtles or 100 million sharks a year, for example. Uh, but also that our fisheries are not enslaving people, are not exploiting the people where they can't feed themselves, never mind their families. So we're, fix we're working on fixing that. And what would you say, what are your hopes for the future of the oceans? So, you know, what would, where would you like them to be, say, in another 20 years from now? Another 20 years from now, we will have definitely protected more than 30% of the world's oceans. The big answer is that we have much healthier oceans that are more resilient, better to survive all the other things that we're still doing. And we have healthier coastal communities. We have healthier island communities because the oceans are, are doing well. Well, myself included, and I'm sure all of our listeners will agree with you on all of those points. But 
thank you, John, for coming on today in your in your jungle background there. It's been lovely to talk to you and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode. Next week, Wales. If you want some more, though, stick around for our closing story. You'll hear from someone who lives or works near, on or in the oceans. This week, we're going to New Zealand. Kia ora rā koutou katoa. Greetings to you all. Ko Kwek Pirihi tōku ingoa. My name is Kwek Pirihi and I am a 21-year-old Chiki Rangatahi, Chiki youth, that is living in Aotearoa, also known as its colonial name New Zealand. In te ao Māori, in the Māori culture, we have a whakatauki or a phrase. It's called ko au, ko te awa, ko te awa, ko au. I am the river and the river is me. The ocean is important to Māori because without it we cannot thrive. Without an ocean to mark where our ancestors arrived or where our ancestors travelled, we are lost and we are stranded on foreign land that we are unsure on how to connect to. I grew up in a place called Pamua, which didn't have the best waterways growing up. I don't know how they are now, um, but all we had was a little wharf on the Tamaki River to connect to, which was often polluted, and I didn't know how to swim growing up. And so there were all these little things that acted as, as barriers for me to connect to the, to the moana, to the ocean. But growing up, I've been lucky to travel to different places within New Zealand to explore the ocean. I've been lucky to learn the stories of different iwi, different tribes, about how their ancestors lived off the ocean. One of the biggest threats I see to the protection of the ocean is deep sea mining. Deep sea mining is a stain on the rights of indigenous people, not just within the Pacific, but also all around the world. When I think of my personal connection to the ocean, I think of a deep, dark, frightening responsibility to protect this body of water that has fed generations around the world for thousands of years. That makes no sense why someone would want to destroy it. My name is Kwek Pirihi and I am a kaitiaki, a caretaker of the ocean. This episode was brought to you by Greenpeace and Crowd Network. It's hosted by me, wildlife filmmaker and broadcaster Hannah Stitfel. It's produced by Anna Stauffenberg and our executive producer is Steve Jones. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music, archived courtesy of Greenpeace. The team at Crowd Network is Catalina Nogueira, Archie Biltcliffe, George Sampson and Robert Wallace. The team at Greenpeace is James Hansen, Flora Havesi, Alex Yallop, Janae Mayer and Alice Lloyd Hunter. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week.